Asia Pacific currents. News and labour issues from the Asia Pacific region. We strongly condemn the, the police that arrest uh, the protesters. Saturday mornings at nine o'clock on Community Radio 3CR. What views of the world should unite to fight this greedy capitalist? Brought to you by Australia Asia Worker Links. Good morning and welcome to Asia Pacific Currents. This Saturday, the 20th of November, you're listening to Community Radio 3CR. I'm Giselle Hanna. I'm James Barry. And it's just the two of us this morning. Pierre is taking a well-deserved break, but while he's away, I should remind listeners that Pierre is actually, this is his last year being a co-host of Asia Pacific Currents. He'll return for the last couple of shows of Asia Pacific Currents before we take a summer recess. Um, so we will make sure to punish him severely on air in the current, in the coming uh, episodes. But uh, coming up in the second part of the show, um, we there's been a development in some Aboriginal um, solidarity in, in that space. Um, a little while ago, we interviewed Latoya Rule, who is the sister of Wayne Feller, Wayne Feller Morrison, who died in custody in South Australia. Since um, the recent inquest uh, into his death, um, and even before that, um, she'd been campaigning for the criminalisation of the use of spit hoods in forensic environments, so prisons and youth justice um, in, um, environments. In South Australia, that ha- actually happened last week, so spit hoods were criminalised, and I thought it would be timely um, to review that interview we did with Latoya Rule during the inquest, just to um, remind listeners of the kinds of evidence that were put in the circumstances around Wayne Feller Morrison's death. So that is in the second part of the show. But first up, as always, news from around the region. And we're going to start in Australia, where seasonal workers face deadly conditions in this country. A recently released report has once again highlighted the exploitative practices that are rampant in Australian farm and agricultural sector by focusing on the Pacific Labor Scheme that allows workers from Pacific Islands to come to Australia on a limited seasonal worker visa. The report found that only in the last two years, 16 of these workers have died while in Australia. The government's not released any details on how these workers have died, but sources believe that in addition to workplace incidents, road accidents and suicides have also taken their toll. Many workers are afraid to speak out for fear of being denied work, but there have been consistent reports of unfair pay, poor working conditions and employers making huge deductions on pay for items like water and other incidentals, including accommodation which the companies own. Incredible. Um, To India now, where India is reeling under a blanket of toxic smog. The Indian government, fresh from its victory at the latest climate summit and having been able to undermine efforts to curtail the use of fossil fuels, especially coal, is once again facing a pollution crisis in its northern heartlands. This week, schools and many factories and offices were shut down in the capital, New Delhi, as pollution levels for the as pollution levels reached the deadly PM 2.5 particles, uh, well above the safe levels of what, what people can uh, can safely uh, consume. While winter usually brings still weather in the northern plains, the last two decades has seen toxic smog 
Fogs envelop tens of millions of Indians for weeks at a time. Not only is the pollution worse in working class areas, but workers often need to move around outside for their work and can't afford to buy the expensive air purifiers that can clean some of the pollutants in one's home. It's estimated that around 1.7 million Indians die every year due to the effects of air pollution. In neighbouring Pakistan... The government is also coming under increasing public pressure as the major uh, major city of Lahore, on the border with India, is now experiencing a severe ongoing smog event that has surpassed all air quality safety limits. And I, I noted yesterday that they were talking about doing lockdowns in New Delhi as a means for dealing with the smog crisis, which again cuts into the ability for people to work and feed themselves. Yeah, and they're in the middle of another... A Delta outbreak as well. So COVID, which is a lung-based disease, um, plus the smog. I mean, it just the situation for workers is catastrophic. And mm. um, I mean, it puts the climate emergency square on the agenda. And it's okay for Australia not to want to do anything, but it's countries like India and those in the Pacific that are experiencing the consequences of our inability to um, introduce policies to limit climate change. Moving now to Thailand, um, the protesters continue to defy courts and guns. Following last week's constitutional court decision that stated that any call for political reforms to the constitution and monarchy could be considered seditious and treasonable, the, that, that decision sparked new demonstrations in Bangkok last Sunday. The protest was scheduled to occur at the Democracy Monument, but had to be relocated as police had blocked all access routes to the space. Nevertheless, thousands of anti-government protesters congregated in the commercial centre of Bangkok. The protest also marched around the city, but was continually blocked and harassed by the police. In a worrying sign, three protesters were shot by the security forces, with two needing hospitalisation. The speakers on the day once again renewed their call for the military government to step down and for the powers and roles of the military and the monarchy to be reduced. An ongoing bloody struggle in Thailand at the moment. To Iran now, where workers and activists are facing renewed repression. Ebrahim Raisi, who was sworn in as the new president of the Islamic Republic of Iran in early August, is, has been in keeping with his reputation as a hardliner by clamping down on dissent. Since the beginning of October, more than 50 labour and social activists from across the country have been summoned by the Iranian intelligence agencies, uh, which is usually how they arrest people in Iran. Some, like Asal Mohammadi and Hirad Pirbodari, have been arrested, while others already in jail, like Shahpur Isani Rod and Ismail Gerami, have also felt the pressure via beatings and greater restrictions on their rights. This clampdown is affecting labour activists across all sectors, but especially in education, journalism, legal and health sectors. Nevertheless, strike actions and protests continue throughout the country as economic conditions continue to be extremely difficult. And just to give listeners uh, who may have been following Following the show, a reminder: uh, throughout the summer, there were a series of uh, strikes in the oil industry, which uh, led to strikes in solidarity in education and other sectors, uh, which was on a on a scale that hadn't been seen for a long time in Iran. So, this is the context in which this crackdown is taking place. And moving now to. <clears throat> Southeast Asia and particularly the garment and footwear industry, shoe workers are organising and creating international links. 
Last week, footwear workers from Cambodia, Indonesia, Bangladesh and Vietnam set up a trade union network as a means to increase their power against their common employer, Puchen, a major global corporation. Puchen Corporation is a Taiwanese-owned company, or Chinese-owned company, if you uh, believe in the one China, China. (laughs) (laughs) that is the world's largest manufacturer of branded sports footwear, employing over 250,000 workers globally. The representatives of workers from these countries met online in a meeting to discuss wages, allowances, workers' benefits and workplace facilities. The meeting was facilitated by the Global Union Federation Industrial. It's hoped that linkages like these will lead to greater cooperation and organising at an international level as a counter to the relentless race to the bottom that global companies force on workers. That is an excellent development. I do think that it's uh, necessary to have um, developed capitalist states in that network because uh, it, it's actually in those countries that drive down wages in Asia. Mm-hmm. Uh, again, uh, in the same region, Korean workers hit the streets again. On Saturday, November 13, around 20,000 workers and labour activists defied police and government restrictions to hold a rally in central, central Seoul. The workers gathered near the Dongdaemun market, a symbol of South Korea's labour movement, as it's the site where the late Labour activist John Tae-il worked and burned himself to death in 1970 at the age of 22 to protest horrific working conditions. The protests were organised by the KCTU, and apart from commemorating the history of the, of the Korean labour movement, they are a continuation of recent protests and strikes by workers. While different sectors have specific demands, they are all demanding a revision of the current labour laws and improving working conditions, specifically higher wages, secure employment and occupational health and safety. And that is news from around the region. It is 10 minutes past 9 o'clock here on Community Radio 3CR. We're going to go do some community announcements and then our feature story for the morning. Goongar Environment Centre is a grassroots community organisation campaigning for East Gippsland's precious forests. For over 15 years, we've been using direct action, citizen science and community engagement to stop the continued logging of precious native forests and threatened species habitat. After this summer's terrible bushfires, there's an even greater urgency to protect what remains, and the Victorian government haven't ruled out plans to log the small fragments of unburnt forests and so-called salvage log in burnt areas. It's now so important that forests and wildlife are protected so they can recover. Head to gecko.org.au to keep updated with the latest news and to get involved. Gecko acknowledges the logging is happening on the stolen lands of the Gunakurnai and Bidwell and Monaro people and that sovereignty was never ceded. More than 70 innocent refugees are still being indefinitely detained in detention centres and secure hotels around Australia. Over recent months, many fellow detainees have been released onto bridging visas. Those remaining are desperate to know why they are still held. It is indefinite, it is cruel and it is unlawful. Every day a group of supporters protest this brutality outside the Park Hotel at 701 Swanson Street, Melbourne, where 11 men remain trapped and whose hopes are fading and whose mental health is declining. The aim of the protests is to raise awareness of the situation for the general public 
but also to show support and solidarity to the men inside. It is also for the approximately 200 refugees still held offshore. Please come along any weeknight at 6pm or weekend at 3pm. Stay tuned to 3CR, support community radio and your local music scene and subscribe now. It is 13 minutes past nine o'clock here on Community Radio 3CR. You're listening to Asia Pacific Currents. Last week, South Australia became the first Australian state or territory to criminalise the use of spit hoods after its lower house passed a crucial vote to ban their use. Known as Fellers Bill, the prohibition legislation pays tribute to Wiradjuri, Warangu and Kokoda man Wayne Feller Morrison, who died in custody in Adelaide's Yatala prison in September 2016. Mr Morrison passed away days after he was wrestled to the ground by 12 prison guards, made to wear a spit hood and placed face down in the back of a prison van. His sister, Latoya Rule, has been fighting to ban spit hood use since. And during the um, coronial inquiry into Wayne Feller Morrison's death, I had an opportunity to interview Latoya Rule. And so this is just a, a reminder of what, Uh, Latoya said back then during the inquest um, and uh, just because of the landmark decision in the last week, we're going to remind you of that interview. I'm Latoya Aroharu. I'm um, a Radjuri and Māori person, First Nations person, and I've grown up on Ghana land, which is where I'm coming to you from today in South Australia, but I currently reside on Gadigal land Thank you. Thanks so much. And especially thanks for joining me today, Latoya, because what we want to talk about today is um, uh, the current inquest into the death of your brother, Wayne Feller Morrison, um, and the, the what is happening on that front. And of course, the context is this year is the 30th anniversary of the findings of the Royal Commission into Aboriginal deaths in custody. So I guess to start with, um, why don't we look at uh, what happened to to Wayne that that brings us to the call today? Yeah, um, and thank you for having me. Obviously, it's such an important yarn with us going through the court at the moment, the coroner's court um, here on Garden Land. So I'm really grateful um, to be interviewed. Um, so Wayne was a 29-year-old Radri Kukuta and Wiringal person. Um, so he also grew up alongside us on Ghana land um, and the family, Morrison family, are from the west coast, so the far west coast of South Australia. Um, and essentially Wayne had never been convicted of any crime. He um, was on remand awaiting um, a, a magistrate's court, which he put up a bail application for after six days on remand. And Essentially, during the course of that time, we have heard evidence that he put in things like uh, medical request forms. You know, he um, was was taken to other holding cells in a place called Holden Hill Holding Cells. Um, and yeah, he, he um, on the day that he was supposed to be essentially released, which is what we expected when we were waiting 
the court from Yatla Labour Prison, where he had been held for the majority of the time, an alleged incident um, occurred between multiple corrections officers, prison officers at Yatla Labour Prison. Um, up to 14 officers were, were involved in the, in the restraint of Wayne. And he had a spit hood put over his head. His hands and feet were cuffed um, with flexi cuffs and he was carried face down into the back of a transport prison van where there were eight officers inside. One was a driver um, and many were essentially with him in the back of the van. Um, and yeah, they transported him and less than three minutes later, he was pulled out unconscious. We've heard evidence so far that there was a delay um, in the resuscitation of Wayne. So it took more than 55 minutes to resuscitate him. And essentially by that stage, he was brain dead. And we turned off his life support machine at 3.50 a.m. on the 26th um, of September 2016 in the Royal Adelaide Hospital. So there's multiple, you know, questions about um, what happened inside the van mostly. We've heard different parts of evidence about the restraint, why they believed he needed to be restrained, all of those stories that come up. Um, but to date, we've sat through, you know, a um, obviously the coronial inquiry almost five years later that we're still this week and next week. We've um, gone through a parliamentary inquiry to look at the administration of South Australian prisons and have submitted our own reports to that about our recommendations and about what happened to Wayne. We sat through an ombudsman inquiry into South Australian corrections about Wayne's death as well. That ensued um, from that, the recommendation came that corrections should apologise to my family about the way we were treated, which was incredibly poorly. Um, and of course, corrections officers and their lawyers, many, many lawyers, um, up to 14 lawyers also on their side when we have two, have also already taken the coroner to the Supreme Court of South Australia to try to get her removed from our case. Um, and that was, you know, they failed at that, but they're been allowed to um, plead the right against self-incrimination, which is a very um, common law that a lot of people use to support, you know, their cases, but not so much public servants like corrections officers. So here we are sitting in our coronial inquiry with, you know, the seven van officers. The first one went last Friday. We fought for them to get there, fought for them to face us, fought for them to give evidence. And they're saying in there essentially, I plead the right to silence. I plead the right to not tell the family, not tell our family what happened to Wayne in those final moments. There were some other pieces that I just wanted to go back to, but Latoya, thank you so much for detailing that. I uh, I imagine that's actually quite distressing, all of that um, coronial inquiry information that you've had to sit through and the ombudsman's inquiry before that too. 
One of the things that had been noted during this particular coronial inquest is that um, Wayne Morrison was in a coma for a period of time and there was a, a massive delay in telling the family and I imagine that was part of the Ombudsman's recommendation to issue an apology to the family. What can you tell us about that part of what happened? Yeah, so just before, as I was saying, my mum, my sister and I were sitting in the magistrate's court in Elizabeth in South Australia waiting for my brother's bail application to be heard. Um, essentially, I was working as a social work support on placement at the time at a homeless day centre. I had found a few addresses in case my mum's didn't work out. And so we were going to figure out, you know, where Wayne would be placed. That was the plan. Um, somebody came into the courtroom with a note, handed it to the magistrate. Essentially, the magistrate looked at us and said, you know, this is very encrypted, but um, Wayne won't be appearing today. You'll have to go away and figure out where Wayne is. We can't provide you any further information. We don't know where he is. From that moment, we were pretty confused. We thought maybe there was just an issue, you know, on the day that happens, maybe the video link room wasn't set up or some administrative issue. We called, um, you know, the Legal Rights Centre. Nobody had heard anything. And then we grew more suspicious and a little bit afraid. So we started calling hospitals. We started calling, um, you know, the prison just to find out maybe something had actually occurred to Wayne. It wasn't until hours later that I even spoke to somebody at the prison, the Aboriginal Legal um, Aboriginal liaison officer, sorry, who said that they were all in a meeting. I quote that. So we're all in a meeting. I can't tell you anything. Um, and that's pretty much it. And so, you know, from that moment, we knew that something had happened. Why were the corrections officers, you know, from what I um, thought at the time, why were the corrections officers and managers in a meeting? Um, you know, what, where was Wayne? And just the fact that there was a lot of silence and I think, you know, hiding in many cases about where he was. Eventually, somebody from the community actually told us that Wayne was in the Royal Adelaide Hospital. They had already lied to us and told us that he wasn't there. When we showed up, um, there were two triage desks in the, in the hospital my mum went to, and my mum and sister went to one triage desk and I went to the other to just ask about where he was. The first triage desk lied to my mum and my sister and, and I overheard at the second triage desk, the nurses literally in front of me say, oh, that poor family, you know, they're not going to be able to know that he's here. And so that was just coincidence. I called them out immediately and said that's my brother so clearly they thought we were from two different families um from that moment we were asked to wait outside in the car park and after that we were started to be escorted you know late at night when it was dark started to be escorted up two by two to visit my brother's body essentially during that process as well um, some managerial staff from the prison, from Yatla Labor Prison, actually came to visit us um, and tell us what had happened. But at no point did they actually tell us what had happened. They more so just apologised. And when I said, what are you apologising for? What have you done? They didn't answer. 
Um, but it was very clear when we got upstairs to see my brother's body, you know, being surveillanced more so by two officers at a time who laughed at us, who stopped us from actually seeing Wayne's body collectively as a family to the very end till the doctors told them to leave. Things like that, there was, there's just so much, um, so much, you know, that we had to go through as a family and that we had to navigate in a time of grief. Um, so, yeah, that, that was kind of the process. And for all of that, the one of the recommendations was for the family to be issued with an apology, which I understand came this year, all of those years later after uh, the events that you've just described. What what was that like? What What is it like to get an apology based on a recommendation in the context of um, South Australia Corrections challenging the coroner, challenge, bringing on these 14 lawyers? What, what goes through your mind? So we didn't actually receive um, an apology. Um, last year, the ombudsman, who I think it was last year or in 2019, he released his report, Wayne Lyons, and he recommended an apology by Corrections. But to date, they sent my mum, I believe, an email, um, but nothing to the rest of our family. And we've essentially decided that unless that apology is public and unless that apology comes with real recommendations, sorry, real actions attached from our recommendations, then it's not worth the apology. We don't want to continue to have to see, you know, anybody with the factor of silence around um, you know, around our meetings. We don't want to give them the benefit of being silent away from the public who deserve to know that you know, they are apologising, who deserve to be held accountable, you know, um, to our community. So, yeah, we haven't received an apology just yet, but um, I hope it will be forthcoming. For the moment, the officers really are just not um, being forthcoming with evidence. So I... I consider that any apology from the state regardless is tampered by you know the lack of accountability from their staff. 3CR Community Radio is dedicated to exploring the issues that affect our future. Because I think it is something we just need to be talking about. 855am tune in and listen up. That was Latoya Rule, and we spoke during the coronial inquest into the death of Wayne Feller Morrison, which uh, was uh, last year. I can't remember the month. I'm sorry, listeners, for that. Um, but of course, the reason we um, brought you that interview again is because in the last week, South Australia became the first Australian state and territory to criminalise the use of spit hoods. Um, and that was the campaign that LaToya uh, was running um, in memory and commemoration of her brother's death. It is 27 minutes past nine o'clock. We're in the closing minutes of the show, James. And I, you know, we're broadcasting from Melbourne, Victoria. And I know that a number of you comrades are going to be out on the street today. So we just want to um, 
remind you, uh, not that you need reminding to be safe uh, and to just look after yourselves and look after each other. But it is the end of Asia Pacific Currents for another Saturday, James. We'll be back next Saturday with more news and current affairs from the Asia Pacific region. Coming up next is Palestine Remembered. But that's it from me, Giselle Hanna. Me, James Barry. Stay tuned to 3CR for the rest of the day. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.